Welcome to the radio ministry of Cedar Grove United Methodist Church. May God fill you and transform you through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now for some music and then Pastor Brian Bowley. morning is from the Gospel of John, the 13th chapter, beginning in verse 31. When he was gone, referring to Judas, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Take a moment to pray for Ukraine and the Russian people also. Heavenly Father, we stand before you once again this morning 
and we ask for peace in Ukraine. We ask for the salvation of the people who are there and the people in Russia. We ask that most of all your son be glorified through all that is going on. The help that is provided, the people who have encountered your son along the way, and the stories that they tell each other. We ask, Lord, that a great work of revival come out of this horrible event. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, about 15 years ago, around 2007, Sandra and I and our children developed a ministry to students at Marietta College. Our first approach was through St. Paul's Evangelical Church. It's a small church that's located just a couple of blocks off campus. We made our first try by having a hot dog cookout for the people who walked by, and that includes quite a few students. And it was of modest success. Maybe a dozen people stopped for a hot dog and talked with us. We later had a meeting, and since it was a Lutheran church, we had a discussion about whether or not having a beer keg might have increased turnout. But we decided not to do that. Instead, we invited the students who were left behind at Thanksgiving to a Thanksgiving dinner at the church on Wednesday evening of Thanksgiving week. And to our amazement, this meant that we had a dozen or so students of whom by far the most were international students from China. We worked harder, and the next year we joined up as mentor parents with the international program there, which meant that we adopted a couple of students and took them home with us every once in a while to help them adjust to American customs. We would have dinner together at our home near Lowell. We cook a large selection of traditional American dishes like deviled eggs and fried chicken and sweet potatoes and such. And we began having these dinners every couple of weeks, usually on Friday evenings, and the students began inviting their friends. And so pretty soon, it wasn't unusual to have 20 students, 25 students, around the table. Students from China and Japan, from Korea, Saudi Arabia, Brazil, India, and other countries. Visiting professors came to join us. Men and women from other countries who knew the students came out to join us, and occasionally even visiting parents from China or wherever came to join us. And you know, we even had some American students come out. Every dinner night, we'd run several van loads of students out to the house, and the students might make dumplings together while helping Sandra and our daughter Jessie prepare the other dishes. Our boys, they like to teach the kids baseball or chess or some other American games, while some of the students, they just enjoyed walking around the property. And after dinner, I'd give them a lesson about some aspect of American culture and how it related to Christian ideas that, as we know, are the basis of American culture. And we might watch a movie, or we might just sit and talk as a group, or we'd play some more games. And then around 11 o'clock, We'd go outside to head back into town, and that was when the wonder really hit them. For most of these students had grown up in the heart of cities with 10 or 20 million people, and they'd never seen more than an occasional star. But out at our property, if the night was clear, 
you could look at the sky and see the Milky Way and all its glory with thousands of stars. These nights were grand times. Maybe 60 students came through our home over the years, and about a dozen joined us at church services. Sandra even taught a Sunday school class that allowed those who had poor English skills to understand what was going on. Several became baptized believers, including a couple of the visiting professors. Now, most of them have returned to their home countries, but sti still several live in America. And the students, they, they, they kept coming back and telling us much the same thing. Our house was a warm house. It's a warm place. It reminded them of family gatherings back home, which was very important for students who were 17 or 18 when they came over. They had left their parents. They had no family over here. They'd flown thousands of miles to this new country and didn't know a single person. It was a grand time, as I say, and it directly led us and our son Andy to become pastors. Ian traveled to study in China, and Jessie traveled to Alaska, where she has friends from many different countries. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, they had been around a table, kind of like the table that we had gathered the students around. Judas Iscariot left Jesus and the other 11 disciples in a room where they had gathered around that table to enjoy the Passover Seder meal together. And those who have attended our Passover Seder understand more about this meal, which celebrated the Israelites' escape from Egypt. It was a family time, a traditional time spent together with a variety of special foods, and it was a time when Jesus taught. He taught them. Today, we call that evening the Last Supper. When Judas was gone, Jesus' mood changed. He said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. And I'm sure this got the attention of the disciples. You see, Jesus often used the title Son of Man to refer to himself. It was from the book of the prophet Ezekiel, as well as the book of Daniel. It spoke of a man who would rescue the people of Israel from their troubles. Jesus was claiming, you see, to be a very important person. Whenever he used this title, he was claiming to be the Messiah. In Ezekiel, the Son of Man arrives to signal the beginning of the end times. So Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. But you know, that's a word that we often use. What is glory? It's used throughout the Bible, but what is glory? It appears to mean a couple of things. It can mean this glowing smoke, as in the glory of God filled the tabernacle. It can mean a general glowing as in up on the top of the mountain when Jesus glowed. Or it can mean a great and wonderful reputation, as it does here. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. Jesus was speaking that his glorious end, the end by which his reputation would be made for all times, that glory was coming immediately, and God was in control of it. 
in some ways this meaning of glory. It's closely related to the idea of fame, but there is a difference because fame can happen for bad reasons. Glory can only happen for reasons that God supports. Goodness, extreme sacrificial goodness which changes the world. Jesus continued to speak to his disciples. He said, my children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me, and just as I told the Jews, I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. Well, why couldn't they come? Because Jesus was returning to God the Father in heaven, as he would explain in more detail over the next couple of chapters that evening. He was going away. I remember some tearful farewells with our international students as they returned to their home countries. We knew and they knew that it was highly unlikely we'd ever see them again if for no other reason that there just wasn't a strong, compelling reason for them to travel so far again at such expense just to visit a couple folks in a house in Lowell. Jesus was leaving the disciples behind for a while. But he had some last teachings for them. He said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. When the students came to visit our house in Lowell, it seemed like they could not wait to return the next time, but bring friends. Why? because what they called a warm house was actually the love of us for them and the shared love of all who joined us in that house. We noticed that those who visited us became a sort of fraternity or sorority on the campus. If we walked on the campus, we'd see two or three or four of them walking together. They had learned to love each other because of the love of Christ for all that comes when we share food and drink together, when we have shared experiences, when people see that others genuinely care for us, and when we point out the love that Christ has for every person. You know, many of our churches have grown to believe that the keys to growth are the music sung, the television ads, the lighting system used, the band singers, the guitar, the drums, the skits, the videos, even the entertainment value of the pastor's sermons. And as you know, there's value in all these things in bringing people to a church for the first time. But the key to whether people return repeatedly to a church is how well the people of the church follow this command of Jesus, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. But this, everyone, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We saw that Friday night, roughly, what, 45 women sitting around? Everyone seemed to get along well together. Everybody, people were getting up and walking over and greeting their friends. And you know that's something that's really neat about this love one another idea? It doesn't take strong young backs to love other people. We can do it no matter how old we are. It doesn't take tens of thousands of dollars to love each other. We don't have to spend money for it. 
It doesn't take a 150-foot-high cross like I've seen in some churches down south to love one another. It simply takes a couple of people who decide on their own that they're going to talk to people and reek of love for the visitors, the neighbors, for every person they meet. Do you know someone who reeks with love for other people? You know, people can sense when we don't want to meet them. People can sense when someone would prefer not to speak with them. And people can sense people who genuinely love to make new friends, who keep their promises, who are safe and easy to talk to, who listen well and will be there when trouble brews. And you know, there just aren't enough people in this world who are like this. There has never been enough people like this in the world. This development of people who love one another was a core part of what Jesus came to earth to teach us. And he succeeded. So why don't people reach out for others? Why don't you? Maybe it's because we've all been hurt by others. And we recognize that when we love others, we do become vulnerable. We have to open up ourselves to others to show love. We have to become willing to give them time, to give them an ear to listen, a shoulder to cry upon, even perhaps run across town to help them out. And that means that we become vulnerable to being hurt. Or does it? Isn't that what the world would teach us? But if we have faith that we are doing the will of Jesus, if we have a deep faith in the power of Jesus and the love of Jesus for us, then how can we be hurt by loving others? I suppose Sandra and I could have said, we don't trust these students from other countries. What if they steal from us? What if they harm our children or our pets? What if they come back in the middle of the night and hurt us? Yes, we could have had those fears, and it would have severely limited our ministry to those students. But we trusted in Christ to protect us. We had faith that we were doing what God and Jesus wanted, so we never had fear. Oh, there were lots of days when we were tired, but we were never frightened of the students or even the visiting professors, some of whom we knew were highly political members of the Communist Party. We simply loved them all. We spoke to them all about Jesus, and we trusted Jesus to protect us. And Jesus never disappointed us. Faith, you see, faith in Christ overcomes the fear and the vulnerability of loving others deeply. And this applies to the love of spouse, of family, of children, of parents. If we love and do what Jesus asks of us, then we don't have to rely on the goodness or the goodwill of the person we're loving. We rely upon the goodwill and the power of Jesus to protect us. The Apostle Peter had an event in Acts chapter 10, which he had to explain to his home church and the other disciples in chapter 11 of Acts. He had been down on the seacoast in the town of Joppa, praying on a friend's roof in the afternoon, when he saw in a vision a large sheet being lowered down from heaven. And on it were all sorts of animals. There were both clean animals like cattle and sheep, 
and unclean animals that Jews should not eat, like pigs and reptiles and leopards. A voice from heaven told him to kill and eat. And Peter protested. He only ate clean foods. He'd never eaten anything unclean. But the voice told him not to despise things that God had, been ma had made clean. And about that time, a messenger called at the gate asking for Peter. He was from Cornelius, a Roman captain who lived in the next town. And we've got to understand Jews were not to associate with non-Jews, especially those who occupied the land, the hated Romans. But the Holy Spirit told Peter not to worry. So Peter went with the soldier. Of course, several Christian brothers went with Peter, probably in case Peter was arrested, they could tell somebody what had happened to him. Peter might have had a deep faith, but those other brothers weren't quite as trusting. And you know, that's normal even today. It takes time to develop that deep faith that never fears and listens to the Holy Spirit. But listening to the Holy Spirit, having a deep faith that takes away our fears, that gives us the ability to see wonderful great things happen as was about to happen with Peter and his six friends. At Cornelius' home, the captain asked Peter to speak to them about God. And Peter began to speak about Jesus, and the Holy Spirit came upon the whole household. They were praising God right and left. This was particularly amazing because these were not Jews. They were Romans. And so Peter came to the conclusion that this event, combined with the vision of the animals on the sheet, God had told him that he meant that everyone was worthy of being baptized receiving the Holy Spirit, and becoming full members of the Christian community. It wasn't to be limited just to one group of people. Peter's faith in Jesus allowed him to proclaim the word to non-Jews, to the hated Romans. And we today sit at Jesus' table because of Peter's faith and his trust in God that day. If the hated Roman soldiers were able to approach the table of Jesus to receive the spiritual food from him and the Holy Spirit, then anyone can. Today, so much of our society is falling apart through fear, but Jesus wants to bring us together to have people of all types eat at his table. It's easy today to forget the real presence of Jesus among us. Our world has trained us to look with our physical eyes, to listen with our physical ears. We have a need to touch, to smell, to taste, to measure, to see reality as that which a video camera could capture. And that's why it was so important for Jesus to come to us. Because even then, 2,000 years ago, we needed, like the Apostle Thomas needed, to be able to see and touch the reality that was the risen Jesus. But you know, there is a reality which goes beyond the five senses. There's a reality which is beyond our natural abilities. There's a reality that requires the Holy Spirit and faith to see and hear and touch and smell and taste. This is the reality in which God and Jesus and Holy Spirit live today. Whenever we pray Jesus is with us, we just need to recognize that. The Apostle John, in his old age, 
received a vision of the future and the present reality where God lives. John wrote, he saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and new earth and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. He said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And he heard a loud voice from the throne room saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. He was, who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. He said he would wipe every tear from their eyes. And then he said, write this down, for the words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I'll give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Jesus, God, was saying, we are it. We are the reality behind everything else. And I, God said, will let you drink from the water of life. So today I ask you to look at your table, your lunch table, your dinner table, your picnic table. Who have you invited to this table? We all know that we're to imitate Jesus. Is your table limited just to your blood relatives? Or do you show hospitality to all sorts of people? To all people who need to come together in a warm house. Your friends, your family, your neighbors, from down the street, the family you met at the mall, the guy you know from across town. Do you invite them over? Or does your fear, your lack of faith in Jesus' ability to protect and provide, does that keep you from becoming vulnerable and opening up your table, your life, your home, your porch to people who are different from you. You may ask why you eat alone so often. Well, move your feet back under the pews because I'm about to step on them. You eat alone because you don't have the faith to invite others to your table so you can imitate Jesus better. You're more worried that your food won't be good enough your home will be too messy, or simply that people will decline your offer. Don't worry. Jesus will help. And remember, Jesus doesn't insist that your table be full, only that you make the offer. In Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47 describe the explosive growth of the early church. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So eat together. Have a warm house. Invite your your friends and neighbors to a hot dog cookout or just a simple time with coffee and sandwiches. Summer is here. Make friends, love people, become just a little bit vulnerable by opening up your home and your porch to, even to new people. Take a meal or a pie to the neighbors who are just moving in down the street. You know, sometimes the food you serve is only spiritual food. It's a bit of delicious conversation about Christ shared in love. So when you go home today, I want you to look at your kitchen or your dining room table or your outdoor picnic table and say, today 
This table is now the table of Jesus. Jesus, use it as you will and guide me to serve you at this table. Amen. As Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must also love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Find people to love. For the table of Jesus is filled with people who love one another. And it's because of this table that we love one another. Now while we sing this song, come up to the, to the altar rail. Today's a little different. I want each of you to pray for guidance on who to invite, how to prepare the table of Jesus in your life, and guidance on all the details. When you come forward, you're simply saying to Jesus, use me and guide me, Jesus. Tell me what to do. And then listen to the Spirit speak to you. So come to the altar as we sing, Blessed be the tie that binds. Cedar Grove United Methodist Church and Pastor Brian Bowley would like to thank you for listening to last week's pre-recorded sermon. Join us live this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and on Facebook. We are located on Route 47, a mile and a half east off I-77, just across from WVU Parkersburg Campus. Donations may be mailed to Cedar Grove UMC, 168 Old Turnpike Road, Parkersburg, West Virginia, 26104. Or you can text the word GIVE to 1304-244-1903 or visit our website, cedargroveunitedmethodist.org and click on the GIVE tab. This will bring up a form where you can determine how much you would like to give. Thank you and God bless you in your life.